You know, I honestly think that Adam had it easy. And I say that because the Bible tells us that the Lord made a woman for him and brought the woman to the man. It doesn't get any easier than that. It's not like he has to sit and wonder who he's going to marry. No dating involved. And some of us would think, well, that would be kind of nice, wouldn't it? Knock at the door. Special delivery from God. It's your wife or your husband. But the truth is, we're involved in the process. And in our culture, we typically call that dating. And we all have stories about dating, good, bad, and some we'd rather not mention. I found something in a Christian book I was reading. This has got to be the world's worst date, at least the one that I've heard of. It's a true story. It's dated August 3rd, 1985, from a couple in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Here's the story. Mike Driggs picks up Pam Sears for what he thought would be an enjoyable dinner date. After getting completely lost looking for an out-of-town restaurant, Mike's car runs out of gas, not on purpose. Walking almost two miles to a service station, the couple borrowed a gas can and hitched a ride back down the road with a tow truck driver. Upon returning to the spot where they left the car, they discovered it had been stolen. Back at the service station, they waited 45 minutes for the police to arrive and another two hours for the completion of the police report. A $20 cab ride got the couple to an airport car rental agency. Seemingly undaunted, Mike insisted on going to dinner. When they came out of the restaurant, Mike was informed that the parking valet had backed the rented car into a guardrail. To make matters worse, on the way to Pam's house, they got ticketed for not having brake lights. Pam invited Mike to come inside, but as Mike opened the front door, he was greeted by a bite on the arm from Pam's German shepherd. The bite required eight stitches, which he received in the emergency room at one o'clock in the morning. Here's the outcome of that date. True story again. Mike got a job with the car rental agency, and Pam ended up dating the ER intern. How's that for a bad dating story? The story shows that finding someone who is your lifetime love can be quite a challenge. In our country, it is estimated that over 90% of all the people in America will marry at least once in their lifetime. In other words, most people get married 90% plus. The sad other truth to that is that every year in America, 200,000 marriages will end prior to the couple's second anniversary. Not even two years into the marriage and 200,000 of those marriages will end. Each couple will stand at an altar in a public ceremony, giving vows to each other, thinking this is it. This is the one. We're going to be different from everybody else. And so many end in divorce. We're asked to do a lot of weddings here. You can imagine in a church this size. And we do a lot of weddings, but we don't do all of them that we're asked to do. We have um, pre-marriage classes. We insist that a couple takes them. We are not a wedding service. We are not a marriage chapel. 
That's another town a few hundred miles down the road called Las Vegas. You can even have Elvis do your wedding or an impersonator. Thank you very much. You can get anything done there. The question, though, is why do so many people in choosing a lifetime love do such a poor job? And there probably are many answers to that. I mean, after all, we are all volitional beings. We make choices and we make different choices as we get older than are always the right ones. But, but frankly, one of the reasons we do a poor job is that there's not much instruction on how to do it right. We have a culture that is constantly telling us, do what you feel, man. Go by instinct. Do what's in your heart. Boy, that's the most dangerous philosophy on earth. As the prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I, the Lord, test the mind. It would seem then that while we're busy searching our hearts, we ought to search them before the one who knows our heart. God, involve him in the process. Get him involved early and let the Lord help. If you would turn to the 24th chapter of Genesis tonight, as we mentioned in our video, we'll get started. And tonight I want to look at two examples. Frankly, that's all the time, barely we'll have enough time to get through. A story of a father and then the story of his son, both in their wife-hunting escapades. Isaac and Jacob. Isaac is a story of prayer. Jacob is a story of patience. As we go back thousands of years to this 24th chapter, it says, Now Abraham was old. And you'll notice something different right off the bat with the way they used to date than the way we do. He was well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. You see something different right off the bat. You don't see the son picking his wife. You see a prearrangement going on, because that was the custom. Parents normally chose ch the children's husband and wife, and it was usually done when they were quite young. This is while Isaac is older, but he's having his servant go out and find a wife. It was believed that young kids just don't have the life experience that was necessary to choose for a lifetime a mate. So in this case, Eleazar, that's his name, you don't get that from this text, but from a few chapters back, the eldest servant is sent to go wife hunting back to where Abraham was from. Now, I, I know we, we listen to that or read that and we think, boy, this, this sounds goofy. You're going to entrust your marital future to somebody else? I mean, would you? I, I guess it would depend on who it is, huh? Because judging from looking around the marital landscape in America, we're not doing that great of a job on our own. And I would say that a key of success is to be able to trust your relationship to a third party. 
That third party, of course, would be God. And just as Isaac has his father and the servant select a bride, we ought to let our heavenly father involved in the process. There's one of my favorite scriptures in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I often bring it up in a wedding where Solomon says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. If one falls down, the companion can help him or her up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. He has no one to help him up. Again, he continues, if two lie down together, they can stay warm. But how can one be warm all alone? Though one may overpower another, two can withstand him. But a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Here's the application. Two is better than one. Three is better than two in this regard. Look at it like a rope. That's the analogy Solomon used. There is a limit, a strength limitation. You put too much weight on the end of that rope, that twine will snap. Double it, you double the strength. Triple it, you even have more strength. So two is better than one. Three is better than two. Get God to intertwine His life around yours in a marriage and you have something more solid. That is not quickly broken. Of course, the question would be, okay, if I entrust the Lord with my future, with my future wife or husband, how is He going to choose one for me? I can't exactly answer that, but I can say God is very, very creative. Very creative. He might surprise you. And you'll watch that here. Go down to verse 5, and it brings us to our first principle. It's the principle of separation. We've already read about it, but Abraham begins with a non-negotiable principle. You're not going to choose a wife from the pagan environment of the Canaanites lest it corrupt him and his future progeny. You're going to go back to the same stock I came from. So in verse 5, the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to this land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. This is not a seat-of-the-pants operation. This is a carefully planned programmed event based upon the principle of separation. I want you to find the right gal from the right stock. I don't want my son going back. He might not want to return. You go back and get that woman and you bring her back. There is a principle that is alluded to here. It is fleshed out in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. You know it well. Paul says... Do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. Do not be unequally yoked together. I know that's a, a weird way of phrasing. What does it mean to be yoked together? Well, it's a farming term. Just like a farmer would put a piece of wood called a yoke on two oxen to do some work to pull a plow, a wise farmer is going to select two animals of basically the same size, strength, and temperament. Not an ox and a pigeon. But two of the same livestock going in the same direction. Otherwise, those two animals may want to pull in opposite directions. 
So don't be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever that in that relationship you'd go in two different directions and your life would be one big tug of war. Primarily, when Paul writes that in Corinthians, he's speaking about the church separating from false teachers. But it has an application to marriage. In fact, I'm going to read what I just read, 2 Corinthians 6.14, in an alternate translation. It says, Stop forming intimate and inconsistent relationships with unbelievers. And that's exactly what marriage does. It yokes two people together that at first they're saying we're going to go in the same direction. Make sure you're going in the same direction. There's a survey of Christian teenagers that was sort of an eye-opener. The survey said that 40% of those who were polled, these teenagers, said they would date a non-Christian. Another 25% of these Christian teenagers thought that they might. So you have a large chunk of people saying, nothing wrong with it. Well, if they do, and if they marry, they will eventually discover that there's a compatibility problem. If one wants to serve the Lord and the other does not, they're going to be pulling in opposite directions, and that Christian is going to find it almost impossible to do everything God intended for that person to do and be in life. And so that's the principle of separation. That's why 1 Corinthians 7.39, Paul tells those who have lost a spouse to death, Go ahead and remarry, but make sure you do it only in the Lord. In other words, only marrying a believer. I mean, what do you have in common with an unbeliever? Well, we both like jazz. Wow. Now, there's a foundation for life. I hope you got something more than that. So it's this principle of separation. It was a non-negotiable one to Abraham. And because Abraham also Isaac. Let's scoot down to verse 10. We find another principle found here. It's a long chapter. We're not going to cover it all, but we want to cover certain portions of it. It's the principle of prayer or supplication. Separation first. That's the non-negotiable philosophy you have entering into dating. Second is supplication. There's a lot of prayer in this passage. You'll see it. You know, the journey itself from Canaan to Mesopotamia. It was about 450 miles. It's a long trip. Those are days and weeks and perhaps a month journey. They probably opened up every morning with prayer. But look at this in verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when the women go out to draw water. Now you're about to read one of the most unusual prayers in all of the Bible. I say it's unusual because before he even finished ending the prayer, it was answered. It's very cool. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day. And show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your pitcher that I may drink, she says, Drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. 
Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac, and by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Now notice this. And it happened before he had finished speaking, he's still praying, that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now, the young woman was very beautiful to behold. Notice that. It makes mention of that. A virgin. No man had known her. She went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, Drink, my lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Don't you know his eyes kind of went up? (laughs) Bingo, he thought. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all of his camels. I don't know if you know this, but camels drink an awful lot of water. I don't know how big her jug was. Maybe a couple gallons. This is commitment. And this was the fleece he set out. Oh, and a chick out there who's going to give me something to drink and water the camels. Here she is. And the man wondering at her remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. Isn't that a great prayer? You're just starting out. You're thinking of the Lord. Lord, this is my prayer. You're not even done yet. Boom, the answer is in front of your face. You can't even say in Jesus' name, amen. Well, does it count then? Well, it worked. (laughs) So it was, verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel. That was cool back then. I guess it still is. And two bracelets for her wrists, weighing ten shekels of gold, and said, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? So she said, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, We have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. And the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. He prayed before the event. He worships after the event. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham. If we were to translate that, we'd say, Praise God. He's stoked. He's excited. Who has not forgotten his mercy and truth toward my master. As for me being on my way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. She must have just been taken off guard as well. Guess what? You are the lucky winner of the jackpot prize. You're going to marry Isaac. She thought, who? (laughs) But she saw the camels laden down with the dowry and the loot, and she thought, I bear witness. (laughs) That's how weddings were done back then. The servant goes over to their house, spends the night, retells the entire story to the family. The family agrees on it. But it all began with Abraham entrusting the outcome to God, releasing a servant who was praying about it, and then afterwards worship the Lord because of it. Now, it's a long trip back, 450 miles, a month of journeying for this woman and this servant, and no doubt she has many questions about this 
guy she's never met before. Isaac. What's he like? Is he nice? Is he kind? What does he like to do? Is he handsome? Is he rich? What's the family like? And the servant had plenty of time to answer all of those questions. But you want to see what this guy Isaac was like? Let's look at the meeting. Look over at verse 62, toward the end of this chapter. Now Isaac came from the way of Beer Laheroi, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. For she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. This is the guy. This is your groom. So she took a veil and covered herself. Modesty. And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, took Rebekah, she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Notice that he's meditating in the field. It means more than just musing or contemplating. It certainly isn't transcendental meditation. Um, he's not doing that nonsense. He's praying. The Jewish Targums and the rabbis take this word to mean he was praying. That's what all the commentaries say. He's out there meditating, thinking on what's going to happen, and praying to God in solitude. He's praying as well as the servant. Understand that marriage is a lifetime choice with lifelong ramifications. So, get God involved very, very early on. Very early on, Christian parents pray for the future husbands or wives of those babies that are just born and continue to pray for them throughout their lives. If you're single, begin now praying for your spouse. Well, I don't know who she is. I don't know who he is. You'll know. But pray until then. Involve God. Think about it. If the Lord delights in taking care of your physical needs, giving you clothing, giving you shelter, giving you everything that you need, don't you think he's going to take care of the spouse issue, the mate issue? Of course he will. The Bible says in Psalms 37, the steps of the godly are directed by the Lord and he delights in his path. And again, Genesis 2, the Lord brought the woman to the man. Make sure that God does that. Make sure that it is a relationship based, based and bathed in prayer. Let the Lord bring the man and the woman together. You know, till death do us part is a long time. Till death do us part. I like to say that slowly in a wedding ceremony. <laughs> Couples aren't thinking of death. They're not thinking of worse. They're thinking of better life. Till de- I don't say till debt do us part. <laughs> till death do us part. Now she may be thinking, well, if I don't like this creep, I'll kill him. Till death do us part. <laughs> You know, seriously, the night before my wedding, I had never met my mother-in-law. She was from Michigan. She flew out to California for our wedding. I put out my hand. I said, I am so happy to meet you. This is my future mother-in-law. She turns to me and she says, happy to meet you, but 
if you ever mistreat my daughter, I will break both of your legs. (laughs) And I thought, that's accountability. (laughs) Till death do us part. Well, it's been 21 years, so I'm doing all right. Well, when you go on a date then, start the evening with prayer. You know, this is a great thing about being a Christian. You don't have to worry about, how are we going to break the ice? There is no ice. You're both believers. Bring the date before the Lord. Pray about it. Open the night with prayer. The best way to get to know someone, pray with them. Listen to their heart before God. Listen to the depth or lack thereof of a relationship with God. Oh, I can't do this. I can't. I've never done this before. Oh, really? This might be a short relationship. Or let me help disciple you in knowing the Lord. Bathe it. You know, even if your relationship doesn't work out, like Mike and Pam's didn't work out, what have you lost if you're two believers? You had good fellowship with the Lord. You treated each other with respect. You came and and brought God and involved Him in it. And you parted your ways. It can be a very healthy experience. I always ask engaged couples before I marry them, what role does God play in your relationship? And I don't coach them, just what role does God play? And I just listen to them. I had my eyes open several years ago on a Friday afternoon, the day before a wedding, brought the couple in. We were talking about their relationship. They had been through classes, etc. But but now I'm about to marry them. So I said, what role does God play in your relationship? They looked at each other like, did you understand what he just told us or said? Was that a foreign language? Could you interpret that? She goes, what do you mean? I said, well, do you pray together? Do you read the Bible together? Do you discuss spiritual principles about your finances, about your future sex life, about in-laws, about etc., etc.? How much time do you spend praying or being in the Word together? And this gal looked at me and she said, it's none of your business. I go, really? (laughs) Now, I just want to get this straight. You want me to marry you tomorrow, but this ain't none of my business. You don't have to ask those questions, you know. It's stressful enough planning a wedding. You know, you have no right to talk to us about God. And she got up and she left. She walked out. So I told her husband, future husband, I don't even know if she's her future husband because I said, you got about two hours to get her back in here or I'm not doing your wedding tomorrow. Build your relationship solidly, solidly upon the principle of separation and spirituality supplication. Principle number three, go back to verse 12, is the principle of success. I want to speed this up a little bit so I can get through it. Success. Verse 12, the servant says, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. In other words, Lord, I want to do this right. You know, I'm in this role of picking a wife for this guy. I want to do this right. I want success is his word. The literal translation in Hebrew is, Cause me to meet the one that you have appointed. Help me to choose the right person, the the one you've appointed for him. That's what he prays for, success. Not, okay, God, she has to be five foot eight, blonde hair, Abercrombie sweatshirt, 
good stock portfolio. No, I just want to find the right person. I want a successful relationship. You know what a successful relationship is? It's successfully finding with and living with for a lifetime a person called a spouse. That's what he prayed for, success. By the way, don't plan for failure. Plan for success in a marriage. Never allow the word divorce to enter into your vocabulary. And I suggest you make that a verbal vow to each other. We are never, ever, once going to ever bring up that word divorce. It is not permitted to enter into our vocabulary. Deal? And get that straight first. I want you to listen to this letter. A man years ago wrote to his fiancée before they wed, the night before they wed. Listen to how mature this is. He writes to her, I want you to know and be fully aware concerning the marriage covenant we are about to enter. I have been taught from my mother's knee and in harmony with the word of God that marriage vows are inviolable and that by entering into them I am binding myself absolutely and for life. I am not naive concerning this. On the contrary, I am fully aware that mutual incompatibility or other unforeseen circumstances could result in extreme mental suffering. If such becomes the case, I am resolved for my part to accept it as a consequence of the commitment we are now making and to bear it, if need be, to the end of our lives together. I have loved you dearly as my sweetheart. I will love you as my wife. But above everything else, I love you with a Christian love that demands I never act in such a way as to hinder our prospects of entering heaven, which is the supreme desire of both of our lives. Wow. What a way to say I love you. Talk about a woman feeling secure in that. I will love you till the day I drop dead. That's commitment. And that's planning for success. Now go to Genesis 29. Let's look at Jacob's story. <laughs> He's different. Like father, unlike son. And think about it, you know... Not everybody can pray and have their answer, prayer answered immediately. Lord, I pray for a wife. <clears throat> oh, wow. Didn't happen with, with this guy. He finds a gal, but he is committed to two further principles we discuss. Sacrifice and stamina. Sacrifice and stamina. You could probably sum them both up by saying he was very patient. Let's go down to uh, chapter 29. We'll begin in verse 6, and I'll tell you why. I'm going to fill you in on the background. Jacob is in trouble. He stole his brother's inheritance blessing. He's on the run. And he's going east, just like his dad, to the same area, Haran, Mesopotamia. And he's wife hunting. He is also by a well of water in the heat of the day, like the servant of his father was. But he does something very odd Verse 4, Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We're from Haran. And they said, He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. So he said to them, Is he well? This is called small talk. He said, He's well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. And he said, Look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. On and on and on. Look at verse 9. 
Now, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth. He's a gentleman. And watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice up and wept. <laughs> Come on, that's funny. <laughs> Go up and kiss a girl and then... <laughs> you ever seen that happen before? And I frankly don't understand why it happened, except it's been a long, lonely journey. <laughs> and if I have this guy pegged right, he's the emotional sort of guy. The guy who spent a lot of time at home with mom while his brother was out in the field. He gets just emotionally overwrought. He goes up and kisses her and then weeps. That's how their romance began. Which brings up this issue. What attracts us to each other? You know, some people ask about, is there such thing as love at first sight? Experts who study this field, they call it love mapping. They say your brain is hardwired to notice certain features about certain people and deem them, regard them as significant and desirable. And that plays a role in romantic attraction. Now listen to the words of Helen Fisher, who writes on this. She says, The issue of love at first sight brings up the speculation of biological origin to this phenomenon. But she adds this, In terms of human courtship and marriage, several observations are important. This infatuation phase tends to wane after four years or less. For some, a lot less. This may be in part a reflection of the human brain's inability to stay in a revved-up mode over a long period of time. The waning of infatuation seems to play a role in divorces occurring in the early years of marriage. The longer couples weathers through the years, the longer they tend to stay married. Now go down to verse 13 because I'm drawing out this principle. He sees her, he likes her, she's gorgeous, he kisses her. And he wants to marry her. came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him. This is, of course, a little bit different. That's the common greeting. Brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. And Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate. Nice way of saying that that's the only noticeable feature. But Rachel was... I'm not making it up. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel. And so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Let me give you verse 17 in the New Living Translation. Leah had pretty eyes, but Rachel was beautiful in every way with a lovely face and a shapely figure. Now, Jacob is gaga over her. How do you know that? Because he says, I'll put in seven years hard labor to get her. 
That's sacrifice. He knows what he wants, man. He knows it up front, and he states, but he is willing to wait it out and to sacrifice and put in seven years hard labor, which would develop the relationship beyond just looking and noticing and love at first sight. He wanted to make sure this wasn't based on hormones or pheromones, but something more solid. Seven years of labor he puts in, he works for her. Brings us to the fifth and final principle, and we'll close with this. It's the principle of stamina. Stamina. All part of patience. Sacrifice and stamina. Look at verse 19. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. In other words, you got a deal, dude. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. Notice this. And they seemed only a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. Wow. Seven years seemed like a few days to her, to him because of the love that he had for her. Now, seven years isn't exactly a quick courtship. It's a long one. It's going to get longer. In 1 Corinthians 13, you know what it says. Love is what? Patient. Love is patient. In other words, love will wait. There's a test. Gals, if you get a guy who says, I can't wait. I have to show my love to you. We need to get close because I love you so much I can't wait. Deck him. Hard. He doesn't love you. He loves himself and he wants you. He's just thinking about himself. This guy's willing to wait seven years and they seem but a few days. Now, seven years go by. He's all excited. Wedding feast is planned. He attends the wedding feast, but it's late at night. It's dim. It's candlelight. There's a veil over the bride's face. The dad switches his daughters, uses them as pawns, gives to Jacob the gal with the pretty eyes. He doesn't know it. He wakes up the next day. Whoa! I had too much date extract or something last night. This doesn't look right. Goes to Laban. Laban said, well, it's a custom in our country. We give the oldest daughter first. Look down at verse 26. Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Creep. (laughs) Fulfill her week. In other words, seven years, and we will give this one for the service, which we will serve with another seven years. And Jacob did so and fulfilled her week and gave him his daughter, Rachel, as his wife. Fourteen stinking long years he waited to marry this girl. I mean, most guys today with a few unreturned phone calls, forget the relationship. This guy's putting up with Laban for seven years and seven more years to marry this gal. There is a common pitfall in relationships, and red flags always go up when I see this, and that is deciding too quickly whom to marry. Oh, but we're certain. Well, how do you know you're certain? Oh, we just know. The Lord told us. Oh, really? How did the Lord tell you? 
Red flags always go up when after a few weeks or a month, they're ready to get married. Or after a divorce or a death, there's a quick rebound. It's always a red flag. Listen, it's much easier to get into a relationship than it is to live through a relationship. Your chances for success will always increase if you wait. If you wait. If you have patience or sacrifice and stamina. A few years ago, there was a study done called an empirical study at the University of Kansas. They found, quote, a strong correlation exists between the length of time spent during sp- spent dating current spouses and current marital satisfaction. Also, couples who had dated for more than two years scored consistently high on marital satisfaction, while couples who dated for shorter periods scored in a wide range from very high to very low. And their bottom line conclusion is the risk of marital failure is notably reduced the longer there's a dating period. In fact, the rate of divorce for couples aged 21 and 22 is double that of couples age 24 and 25. Double. They just haven't built up enough life experience. Oh, they think they have. It's not that they don't know each other, but they haven't gone through enough life experience, built that up to weather some of the storms. Get a good solid base. Mark Twain said good advice to those dating and those married. He said, keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut after marriage. I like that. If you're not married yet, open them babies real big and start noticing things about the person very carefully. Where are the priorities? How spiritually minded really is the person. Not They let me drag them to church. I don't think that's a good plan. Start asking those hard questions. Wait to do it right and don't rush. Listen, it's better to get a car stolen, bit by a German shepherd and eight stitches than it is to have a relationship where you're going to always say, uh-oh, bummer. For a long, long time. Till death do us part. Long time. God, help us to do it right and help us to encourage those to do it right. Let's pray. Father, even with the background of a totally different culture, one that is thousands of years removed in antiquity, one that is agrarian-based, one that is highly patriarchal, and so there are so many differences that exist between that ancient culture and ours, and yet there are still some of these vital principles that transcend time and culture. The principle of separation, finding a person who is devoted and dedicated has a real relationship with you. Praying about the relationship. Praying during the dating process. Setting our sights on success, never on failure. Commitment. 
The principle of patience, sacrifice, stamina, taking our time, doing it right, laying a good foundation. And so we pray, Father, for those who are engaged tonight or those who are dating tonight or those singles who are contemplating a more serious relationship. We pray, Lord, that it could be said of each one, and the Lord brought the woman to that man. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.